So over the next two weeks in preparation for Easter, um, I spoke with our newest member of our staff, David Peacock, who many of y'all have gotten to know. David is a multi-talented guy. In fact, has anybody seen the movie Jesus Revolution? Anybody? Okay. So doesn't Lonnie look like and talk like David Peacock? I mean, spitting. I just talks just like him. Um, David and I are going to do a two-part series leading into Easter, and then Kenneth will be back in the pulpit. And um, because of what's happened recently within um, our nation, about 49 days ago, if you remember, um, a revival broke out in a Methodist college called Asbury Methodist up in Kentucky. And I think Kenneth even shared this. He was in that chapel when God called him into the ministry, he was actually in that chapel when that happened in his life. And it kind of brought this awareness again of revival in our country. And if you go back and, and if you research, just Google great revivals in American history, you'll see these revivals that took place. And the movie Jesus Revolution was one of those revivals that began in the hippies out in California and spread across the United States. And it began, for, for Dave and I, to begin to have this conversation about revival. What is it? How, how do you get there? Is it something that's real? And, and how do you define revival? And so we had this conversation. So today, my part of the sermon series is, is talking about how does revival start? What does it look like to start revival? And then David next week is going to come back and talk about what it looks like. What does revival look like in your life? Well, as I begin to do research about this, I found out that revival has a lot of different de definitions. Okay. So let me just read a few of the theologians and then I'm going to give you a great theologian, his version of that. So one theologian said this, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversation of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. What? I don't even understand what that meant. Okay? My feeble mind. J.L. Packard said it this way, it's God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts and deepening his work of grace in their lives. I do kind of understand that. Earl Carnes defines it this way, the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a moral, vital, spiritual life, witness and work by prayer and the word after repentance and crisis for their spiritual decline. Let me just tell you what the great theologian Rick Swing defines it. I am no theologian, okay? Hear me. I just love Jesus, period. This is how I would define revival. I would define it as removing the junk in your life so that you can hear clearly God speak, okay? Doesn't sound like a great theologian, but it makes perfect sense to me. For me, revival is this picture of removing all the junk in my life that gets in the way of hearing a personal holy God speak to me. Now you may be saying, well, Rick, does God audibly speak, audibly speak to you? Like we're going to find here in the, in the passage of scripture in a moment. I don't know. 
I do know people that have said that, and I don't discredit that at all. I don't say, well, they're just charismatic and whatever. No, I don't discredit that at all. And there have been times in Rick Swing's life, again, I'm, I'm 66 years old, been a Christian since the age of seven, so almost 60 years of being a, 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 of knowing Jesus. There have been times in my life, I've had those moments where I felt this presence of the holiness of God that brought me to tears, and I felt I heard him speak to my heart. God can speak through his word. That's why it's there. It's him. He can speak to you through other people in your life. So for me, this picture of revival is this picture of removing all the things in your life that gets in the way of this personal relationship that we have with a holy God. There is no word in the Bible for revival. I don't know if you knew that. You won't find it. So it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But what the Bible does point to is this revelation of a holy God who desires to have a personal and impactful relationship with the people that he created. Amen? That's what the Bible points to. And this picture of what is revival, it's kind of like, I'm not quite sure if I know what that means totally. It reminds me, I was a copier salesman back in the day. Now, if you know me, you kind of go, well, that makes sense, Rick, okay? Copier salesman. I was in Tampa, Florida, um, and I had the downtown Tampa floor. I was a salesman selling copiers for uh, 3M copiers. I don't even know if they make them anymore. Maybe it's because of me. I don't know. But that was my territory. And I literally walk into a 20-story skyscraper, and my copier would be on a gurney. So like the gurneys you put in the back of an ambulance, I had a van, I'd pull that thing out, legs go down, copier on top, I'd wheel that baby all over the place. My only job was try to get a a demonstration, a demo is what we called it. So I'm in downtown Tampa and I'm a salesman, outside salesman, and just making cold calls and had only started the job. So only been on the job just a couple of weeks. So I had crammed all this information in. And by the way, I'm on commission. Does anybody know what that means? Okay, if I don't sell, I don't eat. That's what it means. I don't know what they say, but if you don't sell, you don't eat. So it's motivation is what it is. <laughs> Rick, go sell and you'll get something to eat. So I'm in the skyscraper and I'm basically, I just go from, from door to door and I walk in I, and they tell you, hey, listen, you have a receptionist or a secretary that's there. She's great, but, but you need to find who, who makes the decisions, right? Who can write the check? So I go in and I would tell the receptionist, hey, you know, listen, I just happened to be in the hallway with a gurney with a copier on it. And um, love to talk to your boss, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I was in a strip mall in downtown Tampa, never forget it. And I walked, I mean, I was just going for, I didn't even know what the storefronts, I didn't even know what they said. It didn't matter. I was just going from door to door to door trying to sell a copier. And so I walked into this one door and there was a lady up front and I said, hey, I introduced myself and I said, I work for Lanier Office Products and um, is there a way that I can talk to the owner of the business? And she said, well, just hold on a second. And she walked in the back and a guy came out. And he says, hey, how can I help you? And I, I introduced myself. And I said, hey, I work for Linear Office Products just down the road. And I happen to be in the area today. And would like, would like to, to see how, you know, what your copier needs may be. So I went through the whole spiel that they train you with, right? And finally he says, okay, let's do a demonstration. So I was really excited. 
Because they tell you if you make 33 uh, cold calls out of 33 cold calls, you're going to get five demonstrations. Out of five demonstrations, you'll get one sale. That was kind of the formula. Let's make these cold calls, you know. I got a demo. You're not going to sell a copier without demonstrating a copier. So I'm excited. So I went through my whole demonstration. Man, I thought I did a great job. I mean, I kind of stood up and they tell you, hey, you just kind of ask them the question, well, would you like to pay cash for this or, or would you like to put it on a payment plan? You don't give them a chance or a choice to say, no, I don't want it. Hey, how would you like to pay for this? So he looked at me and he says, hey, um, how would you like to come work for me? He didn't ask my question about buying a copier. He just looked at me and says, hey, how would you like to come work for me? And I didn't even know what the guy did. I had no idea. And I said, well, what do you do? And he says, I sell diamonds. I'm a diamond broker. You would fly to New York and you'd buy diamonds and, and you'd be part of my brokerage team. I said, well, how many is part of your team? He says, just me and you. <laughs> and my next comment was, what do I know about diamonds? And he looked at me, straight face. And he says, well, what do you know about copiers? <laughs> Kind of like revival, right? <laughs> you can ask me. I'm not quite sure what revival is. I know what it is in my life. So today, here's our goal. Our goal today is to see our Lord and Savior in such a way that we are compelled to invite him to reveal the truth of his love and his plan for my life. That's the simple goal. The goal is not to start a movement the goal is, is, is not to have this thing spread across the U.S. I pray it would. But for today, the simple goal is, what does God look like in your life? And how can you and how can Rick have a personal revival with a holy God? Let's look at the text. We're in Exodus chapter 3. So go to the Old Testament. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3. We all know the story here. I'll give you just a little bit of background um, at the end of, of Genesis, Joshua, if you remember, was sold into slavery in Genesis. He was sold into slavery. Eventually, he ends up in Egypt, and he interprets the dream by the Pharaoh. So he puts him in second in command of all of the, all of the, his, the, the empire. And um, Joseph settles, and his family settle in Egypt. So you fast forward about 400 years. So there'd be many, many other pharaohs that have taken place who have, who have ruled. And you come ahead almost 400 years and you come to this story. And by the way, God hadn't spoke, spoken to anyone in 400 years, according to Scripture. Hadn't spoken to anyone in 400 years. And by the way, we'll see that again at the end of the Old Testament going into the New Testament. So for 400 years, God has been silent and we come to Exodus chapter 1, and because of Joseph's family settling in, in Egypt in over 400 years, they multiplied, right? The Hebrews began to multiply. They began to have kids, and they had more kids and more kids. And now the Pharaoh is getting a little bit upset, and he's, he's a little bit fearful because the number of the Hebrews is outnumbering the number of Egyptians. He's kind of fearful that if they rise up, they could overthrow. So he makes this decree, the Pharaoh does. He says... I want the firstborn male that's born to be eliminated. It doesn't work. They still multiply. So then he makes this other decree that basically, hey, listen, if there's a firstborn male, just we, we want everybody to find one, toss it in the Nile River. 
So Moses is born. There comes a point in time where they can't hide Moses anymore, his, his family. And so they put him in this basket, this kind of ark, if you will, and they put him in the Nile River in the reeds. Well, you all know the story. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the Nile. She hears the cries of, of the little baby. She takes him in, names him Moses, raises this child in the palace for 40 years. So for 40 years, Moses grows up with the best of educations, the best of food, the best of everything for 40 years. He has it all. And then at the age of 40, he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. He sees an Egyptian uh, beating and, and um, taking care of a Hebrew slave. And he comes to that Hebrew slave's rescue and he kills the Egyptian. Well, somebody saw it. Moses gets scared. Pharaoh tries to kill him. Moses flees to a place called Midian, about 150 miles southeast of where he was in Egypt. That's kind of where the story lands as we get into chapter 3. Let me start by reading the last verse, if you will, of chapter 3. 2, verse 23 and 25. It says, after a long time, the king of, king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. Moses has already fled, right? He's already down in Midian. And their cry for help ascended to God because of their difficult labor. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant, co covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25, chapter 2. God saw the Israelites, and I love this. In the NIV, it says this. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. K-N-E-W. God knew. God had a plan. Chapter 3, we'll read the first 14 verses. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, father Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. That angel of the Lord is God himself. And Moses looked, as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. Let me stop there for just a second. So Moses grew up in Syria, which is just desert, right? In Egypt, just desert. So a bush that just by combustion just catches on fire was not necessarily an unusual sight where he grew up. It just wasn't because of the heat and the dryness of the bushes. So the first thing that Moses saw was this bush he had seen other times on fire. That's not what got his attention. What got his attention was that it was not consumed. Verse three. So Moses thought... I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush. He said, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses answered. And God said, do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In other words, all of the Hittites, all the ites, that's where we're going to go. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that my, you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I will certainly be with you, was God's response. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain I'm commissioning you out of. Verse 13, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So in a big picture, here's what's happening. The Israelites have been crying out to God. Moses leaves and flees to Midian. 40 years later, God says, okay, I'm going to do something about this. Remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remembers that and says, okay, let me find the person that I want to go lead this. And he picks a guy who's 80 years old. Now, it's not like Methuselah, who lived like 900, right? Where 80 would be like he's 10. It's not like that. It's not like dog years. I'm 66. And if God said, go do this, I'm like going, oh, mm, time out. I am way past my what? Prime. God, if you'd, if you'd got to me at 28, man, I'd, I'm all in. Fearless, let's go. Not at 66. Here's Moses. He's 80 years old. This was God's plan. He's 80 years old. He's been exiled from a place he grew up in. In other words, he can't go back. He was a murderer, manslaughter. He killed somebody and he went to Midian. That's where he ended up. And now for the last 40 years, he's been nothing but a shepherd with a flock, taking him out. That's who God wants to choose to do the, probably the second biggest event in all the Bible. Only second to the resurrection of Jesus. This deliverance of the people of the Israelites from Egyptian rule was the second most important thing probably in all the Bible. And God decided to, to use a man who was past his prime, who carried a lot of baggage. He says, this is my guy. You know, the Bible is full of broken, exiled, and less than your best kind of people who God would choose for his glory and for his purpose. Amen? Amen? Amen! Amen. Listen, I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't. I'm a sinner just like anybody else. I have the same struggles in life like anybody else. 
Moses had these struggles in life like anybody else. And God chooses to use people like us, like us, to accomplish his purpose in this life. It begs the question, so why not me? Why not you? I ain't got no tools. I, I ain't got, Rick, I, I, got, I, I just, you know, I'm just a normal person. My goodness, you can clean out a gutter. Amen? You can sweep a, a sidewalk. You can change a light bulb. You can make a difference in this life because it's not about you. It wasn't about Moses. It was about Moses' God, God himself. So, this morning, what is the path for you and I to have this personal revival with the Holy God? And by the way, one of the definitions I've heard about revival is a big thing. It starts with one person. And you know who it starts with? Me. It starts with you. So how can I have this personal relationship with a holy God so that my life can make an impact for all eternity? What does that kind of revival look like? I got three simple things that I'm going to be done this morning. Here's the first one. The path to a personal revival with a holy God begins with the presence of a personal and holy God in your life. There is no spiritual revival if there's no holy God in your life. Amen? There is not. If you don't know Jesus, you can't have this revival. The revival that you have to have is that one that says, I trust you, Jesus. By the way, that is a revival in your life. We accept him into your life. But what about us who have been a Christian for 60 years? What does that revival look like? It's the presence of this personal and holy God. And we see that again in Exodus chapter 3, three verses 2 and 3, when, when here the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to, to Moses in this flame of fire within a bush. And it goes down at the end right there, uh, end of verse three, it says, why isn't the burst burning up? That's what my, Moses asked. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him out of the bush. He says, Moses, Moses, here I am. God wants to be personal in your life. He's not this omnipotent thing that sits in his kingdom on his throne and he cares less about us. That's not a holy God that I worship. And that's not the God of this Bible. A personal God would call you by name. He called Moses by name. He says, Moses, Moses. The presence of a personal and holy God in your life is so important. And here's three things about that presence. Number one, he knows your story and what burdens you carry. A relationship with a holy God. God knows my story and he knows what junk and burdens that I carry. Carry. It, it, it doesn't escape God. It's not like God goes, oh, well, there's Rick and, and, you know, he's okay. No, he said, there's Rick and he's got this issue and he's got this issue and he's got this issue. But you know what? I'm bigger than all those things in his life and I want to use him. He knows your story and what burdens you carry. Right there at the, at the end of chapter two, those last two verses, God heard their groaning. He heard the Israelites groaning. He heard them. In verse 25, God saw the Israelites and God knew. I know that in our lives, sometimes we go, is God listening, right? We've got stories in our congregation of people who have, I mean, within a year have lost three family members within a year. How hard is that? 
And I've had a conversation with that individual who lost three in a year. And their comment to me is, is God really listening to my pleas? That's it's hard. My answer is yes, he's listening. And he knows exactly what you're going through in your loss. He knows your story and what burdens you carry. And I want you to know, if you hear me say nothing else today, I want you to be able to walk out of here and go, I, that holy God that I trust in is walking with me. He's walking with me. This presence of a personal holy God, he knows your story. He also demands your reverence when it comes to you and meeting with him, this sense of awe in your life. Moses saw that when God said there in, in, chapter, in, in verse five and six, he said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. See, I believe God brings a lot of these burning bushes into our lives. And we just don't recognize it because we're so used to it. Moses, he'd seen other burning bushes in his life there in Syria and desert. Here was another one. Moses could have ignored it, but he didn't. He recognized there was something different about this. It wasn't being consumed. And he went to look. I think in my life, my personal life, there have been times where God wanted to speak to me, but I got so much into, into the routine of life that sometimes I would ignore what somebody might say that was a burning bush a, a moment or something that circumstances that happened in my life that I would ignore because I was just too busy to identify it as maybe God trying to speak to me. There needs to be this sense of awe when God comes into that picture of your life and there's something happens and he wants your attention. He demands this picture of reverence before him and for you just to stop what you're doing and recognize him. But God also takes responsibility for your rescue and your revival. I love this in verse seven. It says, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people. He didn't say, I have observed the misery of your people, Moses. Moses was a Hebrew. Moses, I've observed the misery of your people. No, God says, I've observed the misery of my people, of which, by the way, Moses, you are one of those. You're one of those. You're part of my people. Here's Jesus during this time some 2,000 years ago. Thursday, before he was crucified, he had this last supper with his disciples. They gathered around this table and they were celebrating the Passover meal. And Jesus made this comment to all of them that, hey, somebody here is going to betray me. And what does Peter say? Not me. In fact, I will die for you. That's what he says. That wouldn't be me. In fact, I'll die for you, Jesus. I can, I can hear Jesus now going, okay, see how this works. A few hours later, we know that Peter denies Jesus three times. Denies him three times. Peter was broken. He was ashamed. He probably didn't even want to speak to the disciples, thinking that maybe they knew what happened. Probably they did. 
That here's Peter, he ran when the tough, when it got tough, right? He, he, he didn't want to stay, he ran. Here's Peter, broken, ashamed, and this picture of it's God's responsibility for the rescue and revival. If you've been to Israel, you would know what I'm talking about, that there on the Sea of Galilee, there's this picture of Jesus in John chapter 21. In the middle of the, uh, of the book of John, there is Peter denying Jesus. And the very last chapter, there's this picture of rescue and revival in Peter's life. It was Jesus' responsibility. Nobody else's. There is Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's doing what he normally does when he doesn't know what else to do, and that's fish. And then Peter recognizes Jesus, the burning bush. Jesus is breakfast with him. That's Peter's burning bush in his life. Because we know in the book of Acts, the Peter that we see in the gospel is not the same Peter we see in Acts. Because that burning bush, bush, Peter took notice. That's Jesus. God will take responsibility for your rescue and your revival. I want you to know that. Because you can't do it yourself. So the path to this personal revival for Rick is this presence of this personal and holy God in my life. And secondly, it's the, posi the position of desperation. The position of desperation. See, I think Moses felt lost, disconnected, and abandoned. I think that. Because here he is, he lived 40 years in, in the palace, had all of his friends, he had his family still there in town. I mean, he had everything he needed. And then all of a sudden, overnight, he went from that to being a shepherd in a wilderness. I think he felt those things. He felt lost, disconnected, and abandoned. He'd been exiled. In fact, he named his first son Gershom. Anybody know what that Translates to be banishment. <laughs> How would you like to name your kid banishment? <laughs> and you got an axe to grind, right? I mean, you're pretty upset if you're going to name your kid banishment. That's how Moses felt. That's how he expressed it. I'm going to name my son how I feel my life. Moses was desperate in his life. The apostle Paul Philippians 2, he says this, hold firmly to the message of life. That word message, we can translate desperate. Hold firmly to the, to, and, and uh, the word firmly, I mean, is the a word for desperate. Hold desperately to this message of life. He says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I don't run or labor for nothing. Paul's saying, everything you need in life is in Jesus. It's that hope. In Christ, I desperately hold on to who Jesus is because it's all I need. It's all I need. We are desperate when you have no more places to hide or to run. Everybody hear me? So as long as we're running and hiding, typically we're just running and hiding. We're not necessarily desperate yet. We're just running and hiding. Jonah was an example of that, right? He wasn't desperate because he ran, he was desperate because he found himself in a fish and he was going to die. Amen? So just because you run and hide from God doesn't mean you're desperate yet. It's when you stop running and hiding is when you become desperate. Some people hide in alcohol or drugs or pride or lust. 
And if you're one of those po- people who are continuing to run and hide from a God who's pursuing you, golly, you've got to feel exhausted in your life. It's got to be tiring in your life. There's got to be this point where you just give in and give up and say, Jesus, I cannot anymore. Just like Jonah did in the belly of that fish. So we're desperate when we have no more places to hide or to run. We're desperate when your personal baggage overwhelms you. King David was a great example of his personal baggage. Just read through the book of Psalms. It had overwhelmed King David. And you are desperate when your only hope is the intervention of a holy God to give you a revived hope and a new start. Acts 9. Saul, on his way to Damascus to put Christians in jail, his burning bush moment right there on the side of the road, on his road to Damascus, he met a holy God in the person of Christ. Paul writes these words in Psalm 61, and you can hear his heart about how desperate he is. He says, hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. For the ends, from the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. Have you ever felt desperate in your life? It is, it is when we are weak that we are made strong. And I believe that being desperate is a prerequisite to having a revival with a holy God. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. He said, but he said to me, meaning Jesus, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. That word sufficient in the Greek literally means strong enough. Paul, I want you to know that my grace is strong enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what revival looks like. When you are weak, you're made strong because of Christ who is in you. And the last thing about personal revival, it's not just the presence of a holy God or the position of desperation, but there must be the posture of of humility and of worship. There is Moses in the middle of Exodus chapter 3, And he says in verse 10, he says, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? I'm this desperate guy. I've lost everything. I even named my son Banishment. Who am I that you would choose me? Moses had been broken 40 years in in his wilderness The posture of humility and worship begins with the removing of hurry from your life. I am preaching to Rick right now. Humility and worship begins when you and I remove the hurry from our lives.
We are so conditioned in our culture today to go and do and do and do and do and do, right? We go until we're absolutely exhausted. We go and do until there's nothing else left. And by the way, we don't have any left for our kids. We don't have any left for our wife. We certainly don't have any left for a holy God. What does hurry look like in your life? When we remove the hurry from our life, it will always end up with an audience of one as a Christian. If I can remove the junk in my life and the hurry that gets in the way, what's left is this picture of God and me. One of the reasons I enjoy preaching, and I don't know it a lot anymore, we got a bunch of great preachers on our staff, and Kenneth is fantastic. You know the thing I love most about it? It isn't getting up here and doing this. It's getting in here at five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday Well, it's dark outside, and there is absolutely nobody in here. I shouldn't say that. There is one other person in here. It's an audience of one. I don't have any responsibilities. I don't have to go do this or fix that or do anything else. All I have to do is sit still before a holy God. I love that because I don't get that a lot in my life. And if I was a betting man, I would say probably... Everyone in here can say the same thing. You don't get a lot of that in your life. So the discussion is, how do we get rid of that hurry? So that I've got a shot at a burning bush in my life that can bring revival to me. That's my impact point. Here's my impact point. Hurry in your life is the enemy of personal revival with Jesus. Everybody hear me? Hurry in your life is the enemy of a personal revival with Jesus. And by the way, we are all guilty of that. Even at me at 66, most of life is behind me. I've got five grandkids. You think I'm busy? Too busy. And sometimes even loving my grandkids takes me away from that personal connection with a holy God. Philosopher Dallas Willard called hurry this, the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Corey Tim Boone once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Sin and busyness both have the exact same effect. They cut off our connection to God, to other people, and even to our own soul. So let me ask you a question. What's your burning bush in your life? What does it look like for you? Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. I'll help you carry the load, Rick. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the start of revival in your life. You know, we we never describe Jesus as one who hurried, right? We never say, I'm going to run with Jesus. What do we say? I want to walk with him. We never say, I'm going to run with God. We always say, I'm going to walk with God today. There is a pace that Jesus had in his life so that he was always connected to the things that were most important. 
First being his relationship with his own father. What did he do early in the morning? He said he'd get up early in the morning. He'd go off to a solitary place where nobody was to do what? To pray. To have a personal revival with his holy father. I've got some homework for us. This is how we're going to close. Is it up there? Do I have it up there? Okay. All right. This is your homework. I want you to do this. All right? Everybody look at me. This is my challenge this morning. And I tell you why. I've done a lot of devotionals in my life. I did this one two weeks ago. I redid it again this past week. It was the most convicting devotional I've ever had in my life for Rick. Now, I can't remember yesterday, so I'm sure there were some down the road that were just as impactful. I can't remember those. I do remember this one. And it's this one called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. This is how you find it. If you've got the Bible app, if you don't, it's a necessity. Download the Bible app. It's free. Download it. You go to the bottom of the Bible app, and you'll see this thing called Plans. It's at home, and it's got, like, Bible, and then it says Plans. You click Plans. And you'll come up, and it should come up, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you can't find it there, just go to the search in the Bible app. It's a five-day plan. Take me less than five minutes per day. On day two, I think it was, this is what just grabbed me. My tendency is I'm so impatient, y'all. So impatient. I run, 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 run. Part of my job is to go like crazy. It's my personality. Second day, he was talking about God is love. Antithesis of love is this picture of impatience. And he says, isn't it interesting that, that, that the descriptor for love that God has in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13, the first descriptor is the word patience. Love is what? Patient. If you and I can ever remove the hurry in our lives and have enough time for a burning bush of, a, a moment in your life, I will promise you one thing, God will speak. May not be this audible voice, maybe scripture, maybe somebody else, it may be in your prayer life, God will speak.